Hello everyone and welcome to episode two of the Priced Out podcast. I'm Anya Martin, Head of Policy at Priced Out, which is England's campaign for affordable house prices. Today I'm joined by my co-host, Priced Out's director, Reuben Young. Hello. And we're also joined by our guest, Alicia Kennedy, who's the director of Generation Rent. Hi. Alicia is also a Labour peer in the House of Lords. We're really excited to have her here today because we've got a great set of topics to discuss. Uh, many of our listeners will be aware that there's been a huge, huge growth in the private rented sector over the last 20 years, from under 10% of uh, households to around 20% now, and that even reaches closer to 40% in some areas of the country. There's been, in that time, of course, a huge rise in the role of buy-to-let, which is when uh, landlords, often individual landlords, will buy properties and let them back to renters, and that's had quite a huge impact on the housing system. Uh, so our hashtag for the podcast is hashtag Priced Out Podcast. So do share, do get involved on Twitter. We're always responding to comments and so on. And I will pass over to Ruben, who's going to open us up with what it is like to be a private renter. Um, yeah, before, before I wanted before we get into too, too much of the nitty gritty policy to so just um, talk a bit about the realities of being a renter. So back in 2016, my actually actually my first foray into housing campaigning was co-designing Generation Rent's Vent Your Rent campaign with the then director, which was super exciting. Um, and it's it's been very successful as a campaign. I, I've just been looking back through Twitter right now. Um, but some of the, the stories that people have are A, just horrific, but B, they're just so common. You see the same things coming up again and again. Our landlord has just served three months notice, coincidentally after we highlighted our decking was a health and safety risk. My landlord didn't like my housemate and asked me to fake an eviction to get rid of her. Um, and I've came across one from me about pigeons who used to live on my fridge. Um, Alicia, are, are these are these just like the scare stories that, that make it to the top or how common is this, do you think? I, I think it is pretty uh, common, Ruben, because, you, you know, ad admittedly, you know, we uh, vent your rent is brilliant. So thank you for for what you did. It is well used. Um, we publicise it uh, well, and it's an opportunity for people to let us know uh, their personal experience because the lived experience of a renter, you know, in this current crisis, but even outside this crisis, when we're looking for reform of the private rented sector, you know, you need that lived experience to be able to exemplify to um, politicians, to the media, to social media, exactly what the experience is of a private renter. So it's really, really useful uh, for us to spot trends uh, and to get stories and to develop things that need policy change. So I do uh, really uh, welcome people using it. I hope more people use it. And you're right about uh, things come up time and time again. Section 21 is regularly mentioned, yeah. uh, especially over this pandemic. There has been, uh, you know, anecdotally from what we see through Vent Your Rent, uh, you know, hundreds of people that have received Section 21s over this period. It's been really tough. And that's sometimes when they've even managed to pay the rent, uh, you know, not least when they haven't been able to pay the rent because of furlough or loss of income. Um, we see uh, disrepair. Uh, landlords not, uh, you know, carrying out repairs as quickly as they, they possibly could. Uh, and we always try to emphasise that actually the local council has a role to play there and people should recognise yeah, that more. And we need to raise awareness of that because I don't think, you know, renters realise the role that their local council can play in enforcing 
uh, repair. Yeah, so yeah, so it's a really useful tool for us. And, you know, we try and get as many of those stories and those lived experience uh, in the media, on social media, and in front of the politicians to try and say to them how important it is that they listen to these stories, they hear what renters have got to say, and they put the change uh, through that is necessary to make the private rental sector safer, secure, more secure, uh, and more affordable. Yeah, here, here, um, definitely. I don't know what your, what your view is on this, but I feel like, um, as as well as obviously the hideous amounts of uh, like deregulation that happened in the nineties, and us being one of the least regulated private rental sectors in Europe, is is part of the reason that we have uniquely poor renting a function of our, who our landlords are? Is it that when you're a buy-to-let investor or when you're an accidental landlord, do you think those people are more predisposed to um, to not get repairs done on time or to otherwise be unaware of their, their responsibilities, stuff like that? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, it's a combination of factors, isn't it? You know, the, uh, the availability of housing has declined over those 20 years. So there's a huge shortage of housing, which the government needs to address. Uh, there's a huge shortage of social housing, uh, which means that uh, people who maybe should have been in receipt of social housing in the past are now living in the private rented sector. You've then got, um, you know, the, the recession caused uh, mortgages uh, harder to get for people. So there's less money around. So you've equally got people who in the past may have got on the housing ladder and now not on the housing ladder. So the private rented sector is burgeoned because of a combination of economic factors over the last uh, 20 years. And within that, you've seen um, uh, landlords uh, invest in property as a route to a pension pot or to make a profit, not because they actually want to provide a secure home for somebody. And I think that, um, you know, you know, not every landlord enters it uh, thinking that, oh, I'm going to not do the repairs or I'm going to screw my tenant. I don't think that's at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Mm. But I think you, you go into the uh, to be a landlord for one reason. And then actually, it's not about necessarily your top of your agenda isn't about providing a secure home. Your agenda is about, I can buy this property in the future, that will be my pension. And in the meantime, I'll provide a home for a tenant. And it's like a second order consideration. And yes. then, of course, you get there and you realise, actually, this is a person or a family with children. Uh, you know, they need security. They may now be uh, have a loss of income due to uh, the pandemic that's become complicated. There is regulation, but it's not exactly clear all the different regulations that I need to, to carry out in one place. Um, you know, and suddenly, you, you know, you've actually got a family to deal with who needs to, you know, mm. live in a secure home and can't always afford the rent. And where, you know, of course, we may have that as homeowners, you can negotiate with your mortgage company, but the whole system is set up that the banks manage housing because they know they're providing homes, they know they're providing you money, uh, you know, they know there's an asset. So I think people fall into landlordism, if you mm. like, um, you know, not out of any bad in intentions, but because they you know, you know, they want to invest in property and then the, the providing the home is a second consideration, I suppose. And I'd like yeah. to see that reversed. I yeah. want people to, you know, go into the business of providing homes and everything that that entails from security, rents, you know, dealing with um, families, uh, children, having homes that, 
you know, a fit for wheelchair users or pensioners or, you know, just a different attitude in the way that we approach housing in the private rented sector. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that that's why what I think is slightly wrong at the minute, sort of like, yeah. a, you know, not correct. Not yeah. Do, do you think sometimes landlords come into it without a recognition of the extent to which they ha have to actually do things properly and also sometimes potentially even miscalculate the extent that they can make profit so they'll go in with these optimistic assumptions about what their their yield might be and then discover that well actually you have all of these additional taxes and things that you need to account for does that kind of create a race to the bottom yeah i think it i definitely think it does anya and you know i don't want to blame homes under the hammer but there's so <laughs> many improvement programs that give you the impression that somehow you can you know buy a two up two down somewhere in the country flip it make a profit, stick a tenant in and, you know, you know, Bob's your uncle and there you are, you know, quids in. And it just isn't like that, um, you know, and, and, and if you want to do that, you also need to consider actually, you know, I'm, you know, I want to be a good landlord. And I think a lot of landlords do want to be a good landlord. I don't want to let's get a downer on all the landlords out here because I think there's a bottom end and a top end and the majority yeah, of people I, want to do a good job. I definitely agree. I definitely yeah. agree. But I, I think sometimes... But as exactly as you say, people aren't always aware of their responsibilities. Yeah. And I, I've 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 lived in a lot of private rented sector homes, mostly around London, probably about fifteen, and so I've had a lot of experience with different landlords. The you know the ones that frustrate me the most actually are the ones who are really nice people, but still don't don't do what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Because yeah. it's it's not enough just to be you know a relatively pleasant person. Um, if you're if you're I don't know what what we have to do to like upskill landlords. Is it the is it the job of the kind of landlord association groups to, to do that? Should we be? Um, I, I think it's a variety of things. I, I'm quite, um, you know, since I've taken over this job and I've only been here since uh, the, the beginning of June, I've spoke to a lot of local authorities, a lot of good council uh, leaders and council officers who are running licensing schemes. And as well as the licensing schemes, there's a landlord accreditation scheme. So they, you know, do try and do that, Ruben, where they skill up, they make people aware of their rights, um, they make people aware of their enforcement role. Um, but I think the flip side of the coin and where I'd like to see local government do more of and where I think we need to do more of ourselves as generation rent is the renters being more aware of what their rights are as well because you know yeah. I don't think everyone realizes they should have these certificates they should have this they should have that I mean I know when I was a student and I was renting you know the landlord would come in you know whenever they wanted you know to check whether we'd done the washing up it was ridiculous you know and they're just not allowed to do that mm -hmm. we had no idea that they weren't allowed to do these things you know so I think there's you know so I think it's both sides of it and the more the organizations like you guys and Generation Rent can make renters aware of the rights that they have and the more that we can work with local government on enforcement and skilling up landlords and making them aware the better I think the environment will be for everybody. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. It's a good call to action for us as well. <laughs> Doing and how we can influence that. So where are we with renters reform? So that this is the proposal to abolish section 21 uh, evictions, which is a no fault eviction and to reform uh, tenancy law in order to give renters more security. So that has been, um, that's, that's in the work somewhere, but it's gone very, very quiet for the last year or so uh, I think you did a big campaign was it last week about yeah that's uh, how long it's actually been <laughs> yeah. happy birthday yeah. section and section 21 yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Their feet for so long isn't it no, yeah that's right so, yeah, so where are we what are they doing well that that's it I mean last Monday it was a year um 
the, the since the consultation closed on the uh, new deal for renting, it was called for, from the government. Um, and yeah, we, we desperately want the renters reform bill. I mean, all the way through the pandemic. And as we were just talking about Ben to rent, section 21 is used widely. Um, but to answer your question, it was the government um, uh, having a pledge in the general election uh, saying that they wanted to get rid of section 21. And for, for those listeners who aren't aware of what that is, effectively, it's a no fault eviction. It's where a landlord can turn around and give a tenant, say you've got to go, uh, you know, uh, without a reason, which of course is so destabilizing and creates such an insecure environment for tenants that, you know, it's untrue. And if you had kids, you know, or you were looking after an elderly relative, can you imagine the upheaval that that would cause, uh, you know, in anyone's life, even if you didn't have kids and you had a stable job, you know, just having a very short period of time to find another place to live for absolutely no reason at all is so insecure and has to be stopped. Uh, and the government pledged to do that. So they pledged to bring form the renters reform bill to do that. So that's the key plank policy uh, within that. There were other things about enforcement, which we just uh, briefly talked about, and the concept of a lifetime deposit, whereby, as you as you guys will know from uh, the work you do, you know, it's so expensive to find a deposit each time. So the idea was that you could passport it around and it'd be kept in some sort of scheme, all the detail to be worked out. Um, but yeah, so we're desperate for it. We've been calling for it. Um, the pandemic has shown how Section 21 is overused and needs to go. Um, and uh, we're very much hopeful that, you know, it doesn't look like it's now coming in this session of Parliament, but it has to come in the new year. Um, and we will be working together across the sector with organisations from shelter to crisis, citizens advice to smaller organisations like yourself, uh, say for renting, renters groups, the renters unions. Hopefully we're all going to work together to, you know, make this braille come to the floor of the house. Uh, and then when it does, get the best deal we can for renters and, and reform of the private renters sector, because it may well be our only opportunity to push real change. So we want to make sure we work together and take that opportunity. And if we're all united and we've got common positions, you know, I think we can be really successful with uh, this government who are willing to listen. They, you know, mm. said that they want to get rid of Section 21. So let's keep them to their word and, and work with them to, to get rid of it once and for all. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to the big, uh, big bit of work coming up. It's, it's quite unusual, isn't it, internationally to have this, this kind of no-fault eviction. So if you look, I, I believe it was Shelter a few years ago did um, a piece of research into tenancy protections and, and what kind of rights tenants have across Europe. Mm. And we're clearly one of the worst. Yeah, um, most countries have an open-ended tenancy or no, at the very least a very long one a very long one no that's right if you look at Germany I mean they've got a really good renting culture from what I what I've read you know I'm sure you know some uh, some people in Germany may say it needs reform but no that's right you know we are behind and obviously Anya I, I, sometimes I think back and I just think you know what what would I do or what would we all do if you know you're, you're paying your rent you think everything's great and then you're literally given eight weeks to get out of the house I mean you know I, I just find it shocking that that exists yeah uh, you know currently and, and it really of, has got to go yeah well uh, the thing that always strikes me is, is when you compare it to the kind of rights that you would have when you sign any other contract you know, if I sign a contract with an energy provider that they're going to provide mm. my gas, I would not expect them just to say, actually, sorry, we don't want to provide it to you anymore. No, completely. You know, this is this is my home and I expect this service to continue uh, existing and I'm paying you money to do so. 
yeah it's 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 so strange that it existed in the first place yeah, that's usually right. Usually phone contracts are, are limited at inflation yeah. rent increases. Yeah. I mean, in, in you know, <laughs> and one of the things Generation uh, Rent looked at and when they put the consultation into the government was, you know, some sort of relocation package because, of course, landlords have a right to have their home back. Of course, of course they do. But it comes back to our earlier conversation, which you go into it knowing that you're providing a home for a period of time, not a sort of quick buck for a pension. But, uh, you know, but you, you know, if you go into it knowing that actually I'm going to provide a home with, you know, with a, with a tenant over many years, then of course you wouldn't need section 21. And it, you know, they're all part of the same coin aren't they you know providing proper homes proper security for people a professional professionalization of, of, of the system and then you wouldn't need these sorts of um you know draconian uh, eviction notices um so yeah so you know bring it on I, I can't wait for the renters reform bill i think it'll be it's a huge opportunity for us all in the sector and you know anyone listening to this uh you know uh take note join the campaigns there'll be organizations across the piece when this renters reform bill comes out you know putting out information there organizing campaigns and the more people that get involved the better absolutely so in, in terms of what we should be doing for the renters reform bill what are, what are the kind of the key areas that, that you think campaigns like ours and, and people that want to support us need to be looking at? So exactly how do we get rid of Section 21? What kind of grounds do we want to permit? And, and you've already mentioned things like um, uh, how, how you might be compensated, for instance, with a kind of package if you are asked to leave because the landlord's selling. That seems a kind of basic fairness, doesn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, Okay, the landlord can sell, but perhaps they could fund the moving costs. Or That's right, the fund the, the moving costs. Or going back to what you guys said about, you know, your mobile phone contracts, you know, it, you know, the, you know, in other contracts that we enter in in life, there's like termination fees, you, you know, that, you know, it's a two way conversation, not a one way conversation. So we'd want tenancy reform. Um, we'd want to, uh, you know, have some sort of rent stabilization so that you couldn't put uh, the rent up uh, in between tenancies. We want rolling tenancies. We want security. Um, you know, we want uh, a national register of landlords, which potentially could help with, uh, uh, you know, highlight it, which could collect rent information, which may highlight, you know, where uh, unaffordability uh, issues are. Um, more enforcement. Um, uh, can, we, can, we go back to, can we go yeah. back to rent stabilisation? Because um, I really liked... Uh, I think it was Dan's Wilson Kaur's blog quite a while ago, drawing the distinction between rent controls, um, which are all scary left wing, uh, you know, destroy the market, and rent stabilisation, um, which is clearly an absolute necessity uh, if you want to get rid of no fault evictions, because of course otherwise you could just jack up the rents and evict by stealth. What is Gen Rent's proposed rent stabilisation model, or is it just more a case of you, we need something and we don't mind what? Yeah, I, I mean when that. Um... When Dan wrote that uh, excellent blog, and this is quite, an, uh, you know, and the ideas are, are going round because obviously over the pandemic, the rent control discussion, if you like, has become more salient. Um, and especially as in London where, you know, affordability is a, is a huge issue. But the idea back then was that there would be market rents 
And if a landlord wanted to charge above the market rent, then they would be levied in some sort of fee or some sort of financial disincentive that may be through the tax system, which you could then reinvest back into housing supply, you know, to, to build a healthy market. Um, and I think there's a little bit of semantics between rent stabilisation and, and rent controls. You're yeah. right about one's, so, one's scary so and one isn't. But... That, one, that one's the scary one, though, right? That one's the rent control. Um, yeah. Which is which is which is well, which would be great for controlling affordability in high demand, you know, high, high pressure affordability pressure areas may or may not do have other intended consequences. Um, no. I'm quite agnostic about. But in terms of the stabilization side, as in limiting in tenancy rent increases. Yeah, that's what, right. What do, what do we need to cap them, cap them at? Inflation, yeah, well, wages? Yeah, well, our, our position, I think the position a, a across uh, many organisations is that no one should pay a more than a third of their income on their rent. Um, you know, now that will mean different things in different places. So, you know, I think there'd be a, a limit, Ruben, where you'd have, you know, this is the market rent. And if you weren't paying, you know, this is the... Uh, the gap between the wages and the market rent and you'd, you'd come up with a figure that would allow you to you know make sure that rents weren't increased by that amount and if they were uh you know maybe there's some way that the the landlords can uh you know be disincentivized to do that um i think with rent controls for me or rent stabilization i think transparency is the key and coming back to the renters reform bill having a national database of landlords um, that allows you to collect information, but allows you to collect rent information, you'd then be able to see where the hotspots were. And that sort of, I don't want to call it peer pressure, but that transparency would allow you to see, well, actually, why am I going to go with this landlord? I can go with this landlord. So, you know, the market would, would stabilise a little bit. You'd get stabilisation through transparency. And there are lots of reasons to have a National Register of Landlords, but, you know, one would be to collect rents so that we could see hotspots or spot trends or begin to formulate proposals on maybe on a regional level that we could do to you know deal with affordability issues mm, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. sorry just just to, to clear something up because i was confused when you say uh, no one should spend more than a third of their income on rent is that the, the obviously the aspiration or is that what you would want policy to say that your rent cannot be levied that amount oh that's a difficult question because i think it should be both but that's my own personal opinion i mean basically i mean literally how can you have a situation uh, and again, you know, we, we, we're not necessarily touched on COVID, but the pandemic has absolutely highlighted how precarious the economic situation is for private renters. You know, they entered the market paying way too much of their monthly income on their rent. And suddenly when they're hit with, you know, furlough or they're hit with a loss of income here, they have got into serious debt. Three, over 300,000 renters are now in debt, became in debt during the pandemic. And I think that you know, that is just, it's like teetering on the edge. And we basically, they've been teetering on the edge pre-pandemic and now the pandemic has literally pushed people off it. You know, so you've got to have a situation where, you, you know, it's an aspiration that no one should pay over 30% of their, their income. But equally, that a bit like 0.7% GDP on international aid, an aspiration has to become a policy or you make sure that you know where what's happening out there in the country, you know where there's unaffordability issues, um, you know, and you you basically create policy to, to deal with that. Yeah, that makes you, know, sense. Be, you know, because honestly, some, and again, back, going back to Venture Rent, some of the stories are absolutely heartbreaking. We have literally, we had a... Um, 
renters call in uh, again through you know people that contacted us through venue rent with the shadow secretary uh, of state for housing thang and debonair and there was literally people on there telling us stories where you know a chef uh, with two kids now literally is choosing between whether he pays his rent or feeds his kids you know that's just one example and um you know so you know if this pandemic has taught us anything it's that you can't have people living on the edge with their income to such a degree that one bit of sort of instability just leads them to homelessness it's it's just a disgrace and the government needs to to step in now and then needs to step up in the future to make sure that this you know doesn't happen like this has happened over these few months again yeah um just there was one point that i wanted to go back to and i've actually just forgotten what it was it was kind of this bit about um in, in terms of making the best of these the, the renters reform bill yeah is one of my worries is that government might be looking potentially at instead of having open-ended tenancies just making tenancies longer for instance having a minimum minimum one year or minimum three years or something like that which obviously from a renter's standpoint you may not want a tenancy that long and mm. you may not want to have to to kind of renege on an agreement yourself if you're, if you're thinking you're taking a temporary job or, or something like that um, do you think that's a risk or do you think the government is mainly looking at open-ended tenancies that renters will have the right to leave because because my worry is we may end up with a situation uh, which is apparently quite like this in germany where you, you have your open-ended tenancy that, that's kind of long-term, but it's very hard to find new ones because landlords won't sign short-term ones. Right. Um, for, for people that only want to stay there temporarily, like students yeah. and, and things like that. Uh, what, is that a risk, do you think, or is that not something we will probably have to spend a lot of time on? Um, I think, of course, it, it could be a risk, um, Anya. And, um, you know, we have to make sure that whatever... Uh, tenancy reform puts in that's put in place works you know with as much balance and power equally between the landlord and the tenant because you know you know the renter will have different circumstances you say will suddenly need the flexibility as will the as will the landlord and you know but you know from generation rent point of view it's about security and about making sure that you realize how long you can stay in a uh, tenancy and how you can get out of it if you wish to do so. Um, and I think the government, I think the government would recognise that. Um, and I think that, you know, going back to your initial question, which was, you know, how do we all work together? I think over this period of time, when we get the renters reform bill, you know, the more renters we engage in the process, um, the more ammunition for want of a better word we'll have to show this is the experience this is what people want um you know this is uh the more renters you have contacting their members of parliament in the constituencies they might live in wherever they live as you said in the opening sometimes in constituencies it can be over 40 percent of the renters uh you know as a population in newham i suspect it's even more as an example but yeah. in every constituency in the country there are renters um, and there are we now have conservative members of parliament who represent former Labour seats uh, where their demographics that they may have perceived or, or lived in before are now different. Those uh, conservatives need to hear from those uh, constituents and where there's renters living in constituencies like Redcar, you know, they need to make their voice heard. Uh, and the more that we can do to amplify that, the better. 
Um, similarly, if you live in the southeast of England and the rent is high, but there's maybe only a few, a small renter community, you, you know, you need to, you know, uh, step up and, and uh, have your say. And I think if we're alive to those issues and if we're in touch and in tune with the renters uh, in the country, wherever they live, then I think we can, and we work together, I think we can make powerful arguments for change. Um, I don't think there's a, a desire from the government to, uh, you, you know, let, I, I think we should start off on the basis that we should start this whole process in good faith. Um, you know, that they've, uh, they had the consultation, uh, they've listened, uh, they made announcements in the election, they made announcements in the Queen's speech. Uh, we should uh, welcome that. Uh, embrace that and work with that, um, you know, to get the best deal and start from the basis that, of course, there's risk, but let's, you know, yeah. start out from good faith and work together to make sure we minimise them if necessary. Yeah, absolutely. What? So this is a challenge that we we eternally have priced out, and I've no doubt it's the same at Generation Rent. What can we do to actually get renters' voices out there? Because, I mean, we get contacted by journalists all the time looking for case yeah. studies and things like that. But actually, I think there's a lot of reluctance among renters, especially, you know, people who are young or people that are in quite difficult renting situations don't necessarily want to go and talk to the media about their situation, especially mm. if they're concerned about, um, you know, having repercussions from their landlord, especially. Mm. So especially the people at the really bottom end of the market uh, where you see the worst kind of behaviours are the ones that are the most silent even though they're they're the ones whose views we would most like to get out there, not only you know in front of the media just so that people as a whole know what the situation, but also in front of politicians. So how can we encourage renters to to get their voice heard? Yeah, you're right. It is difficult, and those with the you know the, on the lower end of the the market, the, the sort of real powerless situation, you know, feel powerless, and then. You know, they're hard to reach in the first place. And then obviously they don't necessarily want to, you know, be on the ITV news every minute of every day. Um, you, you know, you know, what we've done with what what we've done so far is um, we have used social media, uh, you know, because obviously it's the most efficient way that we can to, to reach out to renters and encourage them to come forward. Um, where we um, we respect, uh, you know, if they want to be anonymous. Um, you know, and or, or where they want publicity and where they don't want publicity. As I said, we've brought them together with um, the shadow uh, uh, ministers. Uh, again, that was all confidential. So I think you can you can both have uh, encourage people to come forward and keep their stories confidential, but make the point with people as well as bring people together and allow them to make their public contribution. Um, I would not. In, I would not ignore councillors in this. I think that the more local government uh, understand the role they have to play with the private rental sector, the better. So, anecdotally, I was talking to one councillor, and um, you know, it, when you're a social tenant, you know the council is the place to go to sort out your problems. They yeah. are your landlord. Off you yeah. go, straight to the councillor, straight to the council. When you're a private tenant there isn't that direct relationship. You don't yeah. automatically think, oh my God, my counselor can sort that out for me. And that's got to change. Uh, and actually um, one of the, uh, the generation rent has, has been uh, successful and is working in partnership with the Joseph Ranch Reform Trust to build models of public engagement with 
private renters and the local government that will be taking forward in the new year, because I do think that is a crucial, critical part, but one that is overlooked because many councils have landlord forums. If you put landlord forum in local government, huge amount of Google references come up. You put private renters forum in for local government, there's very few. Yeah. There are some good examples, but they aren't as common. Um, and I do think that balance uh, needs to change. So I think, you know, we need to be active on social media. As organisations, we need to be active in the media. That'll bring people to us. Use sites like Vent Your Rent to, to get stories across. Respect confidentiality, you know, but you can bring that mm. to the to the, um, to the uh, uh, awareness of the, of the politicians without actually mentioning names. And encourage local people and local renters you know, to be their own advocates in their own way, you know, even if it, if they want to write a letter to the media, great, but equally, if they just want to send an email to their local councillor and that's it, that is, as, that is a great contribution. Uh, and if every one of them did that, that would literally be 30 million emails firing off to somebody somewhere. But, yeah. you know, a, a small contribution from people can make a difference. Um, and I think we all have to work at it, don't we? You know, we all have to reach out and you know find different ways to uh, engage uh, people um, be accessible um, and I think there are a lot of organizations within our sector uh, you know if you if you added all that up we've got ex we've got a huge reach we've got a huge amount of Twitter followers yeah, between us a huge yeah. amount of Facebook you know there's a lot of reach that we can get and we just need to maximize it yeah and people who care about it a lot as well yeah definitely. <laughs> so um going back to the point so you've mentioned already deposit passporting um so obviously that this is kind of a, a perennial issue really isn't it in, in the private mm. rented sector is that you if you want to move house that you have to cough up a very large deposit and then in many cases you know especially when you're talking about the lower end of the market you do get landlords who who try and abuse that who who will you know try and, and, and make unreasonable claims from the deposit I've had several instances of myself and obviously yeah. when you're a renter's rights campaigner they they rarely get that past you um so one of the things that we've seen appearing recently is these uh, rent kind of deposit insurance or or kind of guarantor thing with, with with the idea that you don't pay an upfront deposit instead you just pay insurance um, mm. have you heard much about people using those and, and, and do you have any particular views I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, in any great uh, detail looked into them my immediate instinct is that if the system was working properly you wouldn't need insurance yeah uh, you know because you, you know if you had a situation where you know um, landlords weren't taking advantage of the situation uh, of the deposit scheme then you know why would you need insurance you only need insurance when you know you have to fix something or there's a, a risk of it going bad you know, so, uh, you know, my instinct is not to be in favour of uh, insurance schemes. I'd rather fix uh, the problem so that it was fair and equitable for everybody and not go down the route of insurance. Um, and, uh, you know, before the pandemic hit, the, you know, as part of the government's preparations for the Renters Reform Bill, there was a working party within government that Generation uh, Rent was part of looking at the whole issue of lifetime deposits. Um, and hopefully that work will pick back up in the run up to the uh, when they publish the Renters Reform Bill. And I think, you know, it's got to work for um, it's got to work for everybody. Uh, in principle, I think it's a good idea. 
uh, in practice, the devil's in the detail, as they say. And, uh, you know, if there's a loophole, then someone's always willing to jump through it. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, you have to make sure these things are fair where there has, uh, you know, and I remember when I was a student and when I rented as well after being a student and I painted my bedroom bright blue, right? I was like, but anyway, bright blue it was. And the landlord came around and he absolutely lost it uh, and refused my deposit. Now, you could argue that, you know, that maybe that was fair enough, but I didn't realise that I didn't have to paint my bedroom. And, you know, my dad had to come around and paint the whole thing back again to white. Now, you know, so there are instances where I suspect there are, um, you know, you've got to have give and take, you know, on both sides. You know, I clearly it wasn't appropriate for me to paint my uh, bedroom bright blue. However, you know, equally, now I'd rectified it, I should have got the full deposit. I yeah. didn't, however, get the full deposit. But I'm like, you know, 29 or whatever it is, couldn't be bothered to argue about it, did nothing about it, and off I toddle. You know, so even though I'd rectified the mistake, I was still penalised for it. But, you know, you're not aware of your rights. You don't know how to solve these problems. You know, it's easier just to let the 50 quid or whatever it is go. And that is an unsustainable solution when you're actually, you know, got, you know, you're living on the, you know, on a, on a small amount of income. You know, you've got a family. Uh, you know, you've got to be able to have the security that if you do everything correctly in that uh, house and you look after it well as most tenants do you're entitled to you know your deposit and if the system works correctly you shouldn't need insurance um, yeah. so I'd rather see a proper system take the advantage of this bill to sort out this issue uh, once and for all um, yeah. you know to make it fair for, for tenants and landlords alike. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Can we can we go back to something you mentioned earlier which I know is something that Generation Rent has been campaigning for for a very long time, which is a national register of landlords mm -hmm. or a kind of national licensing scheme. Um, because we all, it's quite strange and we're not unique, but we're quite uh, uncommon in, in, uh, internationally in, in not, having, not having something like this. Um, why do we need it and, and how do we get it? Well, I think, I th well, how we get it is hopefully they'll, uh, we'll be able to get support for an amendment or so if they don't put it in the renters reform bill, I think we should ask for them to put it in the renters reform bill. If they don't, I think we then, uh, there, I think there's support across the house, uh, across both houses on all sides of the uh, uh, politics to have a national uh, landlord system. It's very popular with local government. Local government need to know uh, where all their private rented uh, landlords are uh, for enforcement, but also for support uh, and accreditation schemes and um, uh, uh, making sure that they've got a clear picture of who lives where and, and how it's yeah. working. We need it um, for... Uh, well, hopefully some sort of uh, affordability check. Uh, we need it to be able to, uh, for enforcement, we need it for, uh, to spot unlicensed HMOs. We need it to raise people up from the bottom. So HMOs, uh, HMOs yeah. are, are often already um, need yeah. to be licensed, right? So um, it's, Feistout has what I now realize is an unpopular opinion about these. Uh, okay. Because a lot of people um, are very pro HMO licensing. Uh, and are very pro uh, lots of controls on them, not just for the sake of the people who live in them, um, but to essentially keep them out of the area um, and to stop subdividing family homes, which are of course also needed. We take the view that 
in the absence of a national register of all landlords, HMO licensing is actually extremely damaging because you're actually preventing young people who are often poorer um, from, from living in it and, and, and accessing the space they need. Where does gen generation rent stand on that? Okay, I, I don't think we'd be there necessarily, Ruben, to be fair, because I do, maybe it's because I'm a, a little favor of regulation because I think that, you know, that if you didn't have, if you didn't have a licensing scheme for HMOs, there are, going back to the Anya's point, that the bottom end of the market would really suffer. Now, there still are issues, you know, because you obviously get a huge issue with unlicensed HMOs, uh, you know, which is a huge issue in a lot of boroughs uh, across London and the, and the councils are working at rooting that out. But once you do get a, once you have a licensing scheme, you know, you're able to, you know, drive out bad practice and I don't think anyone wants to. Do you not agree? Well, yes. Yeah. Well, you, you, you also you also drive out practice, um, <laughs> uh, and, and and if if you have um, a lot of family homes in central London, say, um, yeah, which could meet a lot more need by being subdivided and helping young people and uh, people who can't pay for as much space as the people who are living in them before. I suppose um, it's I kind of two separate thing. issues, yeah. though, isn't it? There's there's yeah. the enforcement side, and then there's just not allowing those HMOs to exist. So I, I don't know if it depends a lot by local authority but I do know you get some local authorities that have a cap on the number of HMOs they actually allow in certain areas right. and that's because they don't want these renters moving into those areas so that's the kind of thing that I would take objection to because you're saying sorry you can't afford a full property that means you can't live here but obviously if you're using HMO licensing actually just to drive up standards so that you have a register of these shared flats I think that's quite a different thing and that's obviously a benefit to it um, yeah I suppose it's how you use it. It is how you use it. And I see it like that. So I, you know, do, do you know, I've had a lot of conversations in Newham and the latter that you said, Annie, is exactly how they do use it. They use it to drive up standards, you know, standards of accommodation for those people living in those HMOs, you know, enforcement, um, get unlicensed HMOs in the system so that, again, they can uh, make, you know, the situation better uh, for people. I don't, I didn't really see it as, um driving out hmos because i take your point you know where you know you've got housing shortage and such short supply you know sitting on a six-bedroomed house because mm -hmm. you want the millionaire to move in obviously isn't a good <laughs> policy for a local area uh you know and but you know i i haven't seen that as a problem to come through our system necessarily but i take your point that we would not want that to be the reason for HMO licensing. We want it to be about the enforcement and to make sure people live in a standard of accommodation that's decent and safe. Yeah. Um, and I think that. that's where, you know, again, you know, pressure on local authorities, more work with local councillors, you know, the, the difference in understanding what they need for the area. Um, and boroughs like Newham and Camden do that very well I think yeah Newham's quite famously driven up standards yeah. quite well yeah. isn't it, over the last yeah. 10 years or so yeah. we've only got a couple of minutes left I think so there's just a couple of things that I wanted to touch on before we go um, investment in the private rented sector which I use in scare quotes because um, priced out spent most of its formative years uh, campaigning um, on all of the issues we campaign on today but mostly against buy to let Mm -hmm. um, and, and for policies that would, will curb it. Um, and then we see with, with the Holder End Section 21 debate, the landlord lobby has been you know, coming out and saying, oh, it'll deter investments 
again, I'm saying that in square, scare, scare quotes, um, landlords will sell up. Uh, is that a problem? Well, I guess the question I'm asking is, are there too many landlords? Gosh, that's like how long is there a piece of string, really, isn't it? I mean, why are you against buy-to-lets? Uh, because they <laughs> well, because they essentially are creaming off um, income from renters to pay for their own mortgages. And it's not that buy, buy to let invest, in, investors, scare quotes, are evil people. It's just that yeah. um, the policy environment we live in has, has made that so, yeah. so easy to do. And they okay. push, it's pushed up house prices. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, 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 definitely. I mean, is there too many landlords? I suppose it's like, would we want um, there to be huge? There's a difference between the landlords where you've got one property or two properties and landlords where you're building huge apartment blocks that are buy to let and build to rent. Sorry. Uh, You know, where, you know, where does the balance sit and what would you prefer? Now, I think that, thinking about this you know what what matters to us all I think is that there is a healthy housing system that has as much social housing as it needs as it enables people to get on the on the property ladder and allows the private rented sector to cool down so that it can provide the, the flexible accommodation for families and people who want to live in it and that's a regulated a more a better regulated market I suppose Ruben I'd be less concerned about who actually owned the property, you know, mm. whether it was a landlord or whether it was a, a corporate landlord, as long as the regulation and all the security and all the enforcement was in place to make sure that that home uh, was a proper home that was safe, decent and affordable for that tenant to live in. Yeah, um, you know, now there's a long way to go to get there, you know, uh, and I suppose along the way, as more policies and legislation come forward uh, and whether we, you know, the government, meets its targets on housing or or not you know there's a a huge debate within the middle but I think where we'd agree is that the amateur landlord who isn't aware of its uh, of their responsibilities and the tenant who isn't aware of their rights that has to change and we should change that we know we've got a shortage of housing that has to change they need to build more housing uh, and affordable and social housing and then within the framework of new legislation you know you can look at what is the best provision for housing in this country? And I don't think anyone's taken a, a sort of holistic view of what that is. What you've had is an ac- not an accident, but because one social sector's gone down and you know people, can't, you know, people have got less money to, 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 to get the home ownership, this sector has just grown and it hasn't grown in any um, regulated way. It's just been allowed yeah. to blossom in a wide variety of ways and a lot of them are basically unacceptable. And so we need to deal with that. But whether yeah. or not I'd worry about whether or not it was a commercial landlord or a buy to, you know, a buy to let landlord. Or I'm even better, sure. a first time buyer. <laughs> or a first time buyer. You know, you know I, I'm not sure because I'd want them. I, I think they probably all got their place, uh, you know, but what we need to make sure is they're all properly regulated, you know, and, yeah. and those, ha- yeah, those homes are real homes uh, and they're not, you know, drafty and they're repaired and they're secure and they... You know, if, if an elderly person lives in it, you know, they, they put in what they need to sustain their life. If there's a wheelchair user, there's enough space. You know, they just have to look at the sector and go, who wants to live in it? Who is living in it? And how can we make it the best place for them to live? And I think that's part of our job, really. 
And along the way, we'll have debates in detail about what that actually means. But essentially, you know, priced out and generation rent ultimately want the same thing, which is a reformed private rented sector um, that's healthy and that provides great accommodation yeah. for those at home. I, I, I do agree. I think, I think we're, uh, I would be somewhat, somewhat more towards investment in the rent, private rental sector from build to rent investors who are building yeah. homes and supplying housing is great. I personally would like to see fewer landlords and I'd like to see them sell their homes. I'd like to see bigger landlords or first time buyers buy them up. But Yeah, no, you yeah. see, I would agree with you there because there was an article in the BBC at the weekend about this woman who effectively, uh, you, you know, she was in a, she was a wheelchair user and it was so hard for her to find accommodation. Now build, um, you, you know, because of the way that we were just talking about that, you know, the private rented sector is no longer just you know, a student sector or a young person sector. It's literally got people in there who, you know, will potentially spend their whole life living in that sector. You know, 1.6 million children, people with disabilities, older people, you know, built to let, I think would be able to provide a more stable sort of accommodation, you know, better space, you know, proper community facilities, uh, you know, proper community, maybe if you're, you, you know, for, for, for mothers and fathers mm. and older people, you can see that developing. And I think that is, you know, and I think London could, could look at that. Um, having said that, you're still gonna need, you know, as people wanna live in other places, you know, you might still need someone to, to move for work in a place where there isn't a bill to let or it's not commercially viable, so no one's doing it there. So what do you do then? Mm. You know, so it's a balance, isn't it? But I do agree, build to let absolutely is an opportunity yeah. to get space standards, community facilities, security, uh, you know, proper regulation. Um, yeah, I don't think we would be miles away from each other, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I feel like we probably could keep talking for another several hours, but we are coming up to the end now. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, Alicia, for coming along. It's been no, really it's been great. great. No, We've gone through you. so many things, haven't we? Yeah. And, and so much more to talk about. And housing is so huge. You could, you could literally <laughs> talk about it forever. <laughs> literally everything is related to it. Somehow. We do. We do. Uh, <laughs> and indeed. Um, and obviously we've got a, a good few months ahead of us of, of yeah. interesting uh, working together on, on these issues and especially the run up to the renters reform bill. So thank you so much. And thank yeah, you thank to you. everyone who has listened this far. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we have. Um, we will be... Uh, have it, we've got another exciting guest for our next episode in, in a few weeks time, uh, which will be focused on housing finance and property taxes. And we'll be joined by Emeritus Professor of Housing Economics at LSE, Christine Whitehead, who has recently published a book alongside Professor Jeffrey Mean about housing affordability. So we'll be looking forward to that one. Uh, that, that should be very, uh, very thrilling, uh, finance and property taxes. So again, thank you very much. Hashtag priced out podcast, get involved, uh, like and share and see you in a few weeks time.